Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 314 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Lime in the Limelight, an interview with Daisy Ilchowska. My name is Richard Johannesson, and this week I had the pleasure of co-hosting with the brilliant Christina Consavalos. And together we interviewed another really brilliant young woman, Daisy Ilchowska, who actually healed herself from Lyme disease through her own research and ultimately seeking out hypothermia through a clinic in Germany. Daisy is a fascinating young woman who is a published researcher. She has her own virtual clinic, Optimal Health Nutrition, and she recently published the highly acclaimed book, Lime in the Limelight. Folks, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce you, Daisy Ilchowska. Hey, Daisy, and welcome to the Tech Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you, Daisy. And uh, let's first talk about your book only briefly. This is something we want to build out and build up to. But uh, you know, one of the reasons why we were really excited to have you on the podcast, Daisy, is because you're one of our favorite new authors. So why don't, we, why don't you first uh, tell the folks what the name of your book is and how they could um, get in touch with you and or the book if they wanted to read the book. Um, so the name of the book is Lime in the Limelight. Um, it was published back in May um, and it can be found on Amazon. And I believe that I provide a, a mixture of personal story, a new perspective on this very difficult to live with and manage infectious disease and a manual of how to help yourself. So talk to us a little bit about your background, man. I'm sure our listeners can detect that you speak English properly as opposed to the way I speak English. <laughs> so where are you from and, uh, and where did you grow up? So I live in the UK and have been living for the last 18 years now. I'm originally from Bulgaria, but I call the UK my home. Um, I'm a nutritional therapist, so I work with people with Lyme disease and autoimmune diseases. My life 10 years was very, very different. Uh, and it's because of my own um, number of autoimmune diseases um, that I retrained uh, to become a nutritional therapist. Um, and then later on, because of my Lyme disease journey, I then um, predominantly see people with Lyme disease um, as well. So talk to us about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases first as a child in your native Bulgaria, and then ultimately when you moved to the UK. I didn't know much about Lyme disease when I was growing up. We are always outside playing in the woods and fields. So I knew that there is some danger if you find an attached tick, but I never knew anybody that was ill from Lyme disease. Um, I didn't know much about Lyme disease, to be fair, up until about four years ago. Uh, it's not very well known illness here in the UK. It's considered a very, very rare disease as well. So I, I really had to fast track uh, my knowledge in terms of that disease and, and find numerous sources to, to understand more about it. So let's build that out a little bit. When you say I didn't know much about it until four years ago, does that mean you knew nothing about ticks and nothing about tick diseases? Or did you have a general awareness of ticks? And a Just general a general awareness, really, that if you get bitten by a tick, maybe you should go and see a doctor. Maybe you watch out for the rash. Uh, maybe you need some antibiotics. And that was about it. And it's very, very unlikely they'll ever get it. Um, so that, that, that was about it. So not much, really. Um, so you, you, you indicated that you're, you're now currently a nutritional therapist. Is that what your title is? Yes. Yeah. 
So how did you develop your passion for that? When did you first think that that was a profession that you would pursue? And, and how did you come to, uh, to ultimately become a, a, a nutritional therapist? So I, um, I got really, really sick when I was 26. Um, I was diagnosed with three autoimmune diseases. Uh, and from very fit and healthy person, I, I was in so much pain all over my body that I struggled to put my clothes on. Doctors struggled to figure out what, what was wrong with me until I was finally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and two other autoimmune conditions. And I was told, you know, uh, take these strong immunosuppressing medications. You're likely to get disabled in the next eight years. There's not much that we can do about you. Um, so I took these very, very strong medications for three, four years, and I was getting progressively worse until I started reading a bit more about functional medicine and nutritional therapy. And I instinctively decided to give up most of the medications and just try natural um, ways of managing inflammation and the autoimmunity element. And I'd say within two years, it came off all six medications. Um, and I was feeling much, much better than I felt in years. And then I thought, oh, God, this is absolutely great. Um, I'd love to be able to help other people in, a, in, in this very similar way. And although I was working as a marketing manager at the time, I decided to continue my day job train in the evenings part-time and do a master's degree in nutritional therapy. So I did work alongside my second degree uh, whilst training as a nutritional therapist. Uh, and it's towards that journey of just about qualifying as a nutritional therapist and starting to see clients that Lyme disease hit. <laughs> and that then slightly changed the trajectory. Well, it changed completely the trajectory of my life and my career as well. So when you say Lyme disease hit, meaning were you learning about Lyme disease from your from your patients uh, or from the people you were working with, or did you did you receive a Lyme disease diagnosis yourself? I started experiencing very very strange symptoms. So in the summer of 2019, I started having a twitch in my finger, which I didn't think much of, but within days, this twitch started going everywhere. All of a sudden, all my muscles were vibrating. I was having severe brain fog, you know, having conquered three autoimmune diseases and being told you're going to get disabled. And here I am on top of the world, you know, feeling great. And then starting to get these really, really strange symptoms. It was really, really concerning. Um, then I started getting severe insomnia. I couldn't keep balance. I was getting these severe burning sensations at the bottom of my feet. Um, the scariest thing was getting these non-epileptic seizures, uh, which it's 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 a complete loss of control of your body. Um, I was I was feeling depressed. I was I wasn't getting any answers from the doctors. I had many false negative tests. I was being told that I'm just stressed. That it's all in my head. That maybe it's a fourth autoimmune condition that's appearing out of nowhere. So this is what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, I'm feeling great. I'm ready to help other people with complex health issues. And I start experiencing these very, very complex health issues myself. And at the beginning, I didn't know what's going on. My symptoms were very similar to, um, it was very neurological really quickly. You know, some I know now with some clients that you develop some of the neurological symptoms much later, but mine were very, very fast tracked. So I was having these symptoms 
I'd say mixture between Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis and ALS, which was really scary. And on, a, on one particular day, I'll be experiencing a mixture of these symptoms plus chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, can't get out of bed. And then next day I'll be, I'll be fine. And then they'll come back again and they'll wax and wane. And it was a really, really scary experience. So that's what I mean. I started, you know, being more familiar with Lyme disease. So let's build out the autoimmune disease history that you had. So you said you had overcome three autoimmune diseases. What were the three autoimmune diseases and how did each one of those diseases present? So the main one was rheumatoid arthritis, which, um, so autoimmune diseases, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know are diseases where your immune system gets really confused and starts attacking self tissues. And the conventional medical world doesn't know much about what's triggering these, but in the functional medicine world, we know there are many factors, including toxins and bacteria. Anyway, so, I, the main one was rheumatoid arthritis, where my immune system was attacking the lining of my joints, causing severe pain and inflammation. Uh, then I had Sjogren's syndrome, which um, it's attacking sort of the, the glands that produce mucus in your mouth and your eyes and different parts of the body. And then I also had Raynaud's syndrome, which is to do with um, kind of the blood vessels uh, and lots of people get uh, really, really with temperature changes, they can get really cold uh, hands discoloration and they kind of lose the feelings in, in their hands. So I have these three autoimmune conditions, rheumatoid arthritis being the most serious one. one of them. Okay. Now let me ask you, do you ever recall being bitten by a tick? No, that's the strange thing. I actually suspect and I've gone over this maybe hundreds of times in my head. Where was it? You know, where did it come from? Was I bitten when I was a child in Bulgaria? And now it's just, you know, developed now um, because that very often happens. I see that a lot with clients. But I think I actually got my Lyme disease from a mosquito bite. We were traveling um, at the Galapagos Islands and we were doing a lot of bird watching and stupidly, I because I don't like toxins, so I don't like using some of these mosquito protective sprays or anything like that. I was using these natural bracelets and on one of the islands we we're doing bird watching and I got bitten by so many mosquitoes and I didn't just develop like a normal mosquito bite. I developed these blotches all over my arm and that was sort of about three months before the initial symptoms developed. So. I think my gut instinct tells me that it's it's actually mosquitoes that it came from. And of course, we know that mosquitoes, fleas, or plant who thinks that horsefly, bed bugs, things like that can carry Lyme disease. So I think mine came from mosquito. So I think, I, I, so let's build this out a little bit because, because although mosquitoes do carry Lyme disease and horseflies and, and, and fleas do carry Lyme disease, in most cases, you're not going to get sick from a bite from that type of a vector because they generally don't attach long enough to spit in mm. a large enough volume of, of, the, of the bacteria to ultimately cause you to get sick. But maybe in your case, because you were already immunocompromised and you had a series of different autoimmune diseases that you had to manage during your life, that you didn't need a large volume of, of, the, um, of the bacteria to ultimately, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, actually possible or i've uh, i'm 
I use a particular lab when I test my plants based in Hungary. And the guy that's behind it, he's done, he's been doing, his father was doing a lot of research on Lyme disease. He's doing a lot of research. His view is that actually it could be the secondary bite, the secondary infection that's the one that usually brings on symptoms. He actually thinks it's the, it's only with the secondary infection that you can get the rash, which only appears in 30% of cases. So I did wonder whether that may be you know, the tip of the iceberg. And I have had that infection, I had the autoimmunity, and then that that could be another factor. But of course, we can never be 100% sure. Unfortunately, things with Lyme disease aren't black and white. Um, they are, and look, there, there are a number of different ways that I think the community recognizes, I think that are generally accepted, right? We know congenital Lyme is something that's certainly generally accepted, right? So we know tick bites are the primary way that people will get Lyme disease. Uh, but we could also we could also get Lyme disease congenitally. Do you, do you think there's any possibility that you were born with Lyme disease and perhaps the, the perhaps congenital Lyme is what caused you to suffer all the autoimmune diseases that you were dealing uh, with? I'm not I'm not quite sure. To be fair, although my mom has got a number of kind of very very strange autoimmune processes going on with her, it's possible. But of course, you've got congenital Lyme. Lyme can also be sexually transmitted. Again, that's really, really hard to be studied. And whenever I was having the treatments for my Lyme disease, my partner also had to have them as well because I think just to rule out that we can keep passing it to each other, unfortunately. So, so Daisy, does your partner have Lyme disease or was your partner just being tested for Lyme disease? So he actually came up borderline on some of the tests. Um, they didn't do, my Lyme disease had many false negative. My Lyme disease only showed up on a dark blood analysis type of test where we take out the variables of my immune system, not, not, not producing antibodies, which is the case with many people. And we just look through the blood for that spirochete. He did the antibody testing uh, whilst we were in Germany at that clinic that was being treated and he came on borderline. So it was possible he didn't have any symptoms. Um, you know, there, there were some risks to the hypothermia procedures I was having. So I didn't want to push him to have that treatment. But it, having seen what I, you know, what my symptoms were like and, and, and the risks, he wanted to have have that procedure as well. But since that, I, um, I have had many clients where one, one, so the husband or the wife has got Lyme disease and they have many, many symptoms. And when they when we test the partner, if they wish to do that, the partner has got some of the bacteria, but you know, often not, none of the symptoms. So, yeah. So Daisy, I know that that is less accepted in the community generally. I think I think the patient community believes that sexual transmission of of Lyme disease is is certain, and and, and I think most of the people we interview believe that to be the case. But a lot of the experts that we've interviewed certainly debate that issue, right? And, and I think mm. part of that, again, goes to the question of whether or not the volume of bacteria through sexual transmission would be large enough. So when, um, when, we, started, when we first started studying this at Take Boot Camp, uh, we had come across a study uh, that, was, uh, that was done in the recent past where, they, where, the, where the researchers studied the sperm and, and vaginal mm. fluids of people with Lyme disease. And what they discovered was when, they were, when, when one partner had had Lyme disease, it was very likely that the other partner had Lyme disease and they were finding it in both, both uh, sets of, uh, of fluids. 
Um, and what Dr. Brian Fallon argued in his book on Lyme disease, which of course is one of the, one of the top books and, 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 and Dr. Fallon's a brilliant man. He argued that the reason that's the case is because if you're living in a tick endemic community, it's likely that you're both going to come in contact mm -hmm. with ticks and therefore it's more likely that you're going to um, be, uh, you're gonna have Lyme disease. When we, when we interviewed Dr. Bill Rawls about this issue, he had argued that yes, it can be sexually transmitted, but it's unlikely. It, 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 the, the, the odds mm -hmm. are very small, but it can be. And then, then, we, then we came back to our, one of our favorites, Dr. Alan McDonald, uh, who we recently interviewed on episode 300 of our podcast, another one of our favorites. And he has said, absolutely, it is sexually transmissible. And he cited a study that was done, uh, a dog study, where male and female dogs were transferring Lyme disease back and forth between one another uh, through sexual transmission. So I think it's an area that we certainly have to spend some more time researching. It, it, I, it's really interesting if we just think about the, I think Lyme bacteria is obviously it's a spirochete. The other bacteria that's like it is syphilis, which is sexually transmitted disease. I think if a Lyme disease is likely, I'm not too sure whether some co-infections and, and, and in Europe and in the UK, I find mostly Babesia and Bartonella because they're more intracellular I'm not quite sure whether they can be sexually transmitted, but for me, I think Lyme disease is, is likely. Yeah, um, so, the, so the argument is against Lyme disease being sexually transmitted is that Lyme disease cannot survive outside of the body, whereas, whereas, whereas syphilis can. So they are both, mm -hmm. they're, they're similar in some ways, but they're, but, they're, but they're different in others. And that's one of the reasons why I think Fallon argued that it isn't, it isn't sexually transmissible transmissible and 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 Rawls was questionable. I, I think it's really, you know, I think it's really bacterial load that's the issue, right? Which is why in most cases, if there isn't a long attachment of a tick, you're you're likely not going to get Lyme disease. Most of the research is showing, you know, these But also it depends in what stage of that feeding cycle the tick is. I think that's really, really important. It's not it's not a minimum 16 hours or 20 hours or some of these guidelines. It's you could have had a feeding cycle when it was attached to a deer or dock or something like that, and then it gets onto you, and then it's got a much shorter cycle. I think that's a variable that needs to be considered. It, it is. It does have to be explored. And I know Dr. Bergdorfer argued uh, before he had passed away that if the that if the bacteria was in the spit gland of the tick, meaning that the feeding cycle, yeah. as you argued, that the, the attachment wouldn't have to be very long. But in, I don't think the research has borne that out, right? I think most of the research, at least laboratory research, uh, has 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 demonstrated that attachment does need to be somewhere between 24 and 36 hours before at least that um, bacteria would um, you know, and, and I and I've asked entomologists about this. Like, why is that the case? Why does it take that long? Does it take that mm -hmm. long before the gut ultimately, you know, it, it, it's released from the gut? And 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 actually, what they've all told me is, everyone we've interviewed, we don't know. We we just don't know we why. Don't know. And so, and we yeah. mustn't forget this this what over 30, 40 types of Borrelia bacteria, Lyme disease bacteria. Is there differences in terms of you know? There could be. There's still. So many things that we don't know. Um, I mean, so many things we don't know, right? I mean, really yeah, interesting, you know. though. Really interesting. So let me ask you this before we move on, uh, Daisy. And it's one of my favorite questions: How do you define Lyme disease? Because you know what? One of the things we find most frustrating about Lyme disease is it's a disease without a definition, right? There's no consistent definition. And 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 I like to ask that question because I I would like to uh, like to hear what your what your definition of Lyme disease is. Um, I would say a zoonotic, so a zoonotic infectious 
hard to detect, <laughs> hence the unreliable testing, hard to detect and very persistent bacterial infection that can um, affect multiple systems within your body, your immune system, your nervous system, your digestive system, etc. So I would, I would, yeah, I'll say so that's I, my definition. <laughs> so let me ask you, so you, you use the word bacterial infection. Does that mean that if there are either viral infections or, 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 or um, protozoa that are spit into somebody from a tick that you would not define that as Lyme disease, meaning um, would you, would you I, accept I would Dr. Say, Wall? I'm sorry. I, I would say, I think we should really be using the term tick-borne infections because Lyme disease never comes along. I've never, ever had a client, and I've seen you know, hundreds of clients that has only got Lyme disease. So, and it's more of a syndrome than if you consider what, Bartonella can do, what Babesia can do, what Mycoplasma can do. And these are the, the more common ones that we see this side of the pond. So I'd say it's a, a group of tick-borne infections, but then is it a tick vector-borne infections maybe is the more, you know, right term. So yes, you're right. And Lyme so, disease uh, never comes along. along. Right. That's so, why I keep so, saying to my... So you're, you're more in the camp with Dr. Rawls who calls it a polymicrobial infection, right? Yes. Okay. Mm. But I, as I talk in the book, um, and I'll share this with you later, um, when we talk a bit more detail, it, it's it, actually when you start looking at it, it's more of a virus, Lyme disease. If we just look isolated at, at the Lyme disease bacteria, it's more akin to a virus than it is to a bacterial infection. And that's when things start getting really interesting. And maybe we're starting to get some explanations as to why it's so persistent, or why it can do so much damage. I'm so excited. I can't wait till we get to that part. <laughs> but let's let's continue to move forward with your story before we before we get too excited about, uh, about <laughs> that portion of our conversation. Um, so talk to us a little bit about first your early education, what brought you to the marketing arena and then how that ultimately caused you to pivot over to um, now the nutritional arena and how those two sort of journeys um, you know, uh, intersected when you got your Lyme disease diagnosis. So I, I really enjoyed writing uh, ever since I was really young and I decided to come over to the UK when I was 18 and do a degree marketing and it's something that I really really enjoyed and uh, I had a career as a marketing manager for, for over 10 years working for a charitable foundation which I really enjoyed so I felt fulfilled um, in my career but then through that personal journey getting really sick and then getting really well despite you know the doctor's prognosis that I'll be disabled uh, and yet eight years down the line we're supposed to be in a wheelchair I'm actually thriving and ready to to support other people and everything in nutritional therapy is evidence-based uh, you know it's everything we do is backed by research there is a lot of research about you know different types of triggers for autoimmunity and unfortunately the medical model just focused on immune suppression and these different drugs that were really, really treating the symptoms. It was what I call sticky plaster medicine. So although I really loved marketing and I found my career fulfilling, I thought this is my calling in life. So um, that's that's what um, 
you know, made me requalify. And I'll say marketing and that passion for writing and telling stories uh, really, really helps me my day job uh, and really helped me when it comes to writing the book and blogs and um, things like that. Um, what helped me in my formal education as a nutritional therapist is that I also had some research published on autoimmunity uh, and the role of different nutritional interventions specifically relating to rheumatoid arthritis. So on the anniversary of my wheelchair diagnosis, I was not only off six medications, doing really well, but I also had my research published in a really well-respected um, medical journal. So that was, it was all going really, really great for me, but that's when things really went downhill. All right, so now, now, now we see the train coming down the track and it's about to run you over because you've now been in a foreign country and you're getting eaten alive by, by, by mosquitoes. And you said that you saw all kinds of welts all over your body. Talk to us mm -hmm. about how you went from being wealthy from all of the mosquito bites to now uh, managing this new disease uh, that was unlike what you had been dealing with when you were suffering from your autoimmune diseases. So several months, you know, I was fine. You know, I had one kind of flu-like symptom um, thing happen whilst I was on the boat because we were going from island to island on the boat and I didn't think much of it. I thought it was seasickness and that was after I had those bites. I kind of forgot about it. And then I was fine for three, over three months afterwards before some of these symptoms hit. But I was starting to get, slightly stressed because I had some final things when it comes to my clinical practice because when you qualify as a nutritionist you not only have to do the um, science bit and the study bit but you have to do clinical practice so I was trying to finish um, my research paper exams clinical practice and my day job and there weren't enough hours in the day and I was very much an overachiever there was nothing that I couldn't do and I think I wasn't listening to the signals that were there I was not listening to my body I just kept going and going and going so it could have been the stress that kind of triggered that dormant at that point infection um, that was Lyme disease uh, so what, and I what got really unwell really quickly so that twitch and then Boom. It was twitch to seizures, maybe six, eight weeks. So we, we talked a little bit offline about uh, the definition of risk, right? And risk being threat times vulnerability. The threat meaning mm -hmm. coming in contact with the polymicrobial um, the infections that could cause us to suffer from chronic Lyme disease. And of course, it's vulnerability. And vulnerability is that piece where your body is not as capable of fending off um, these, uh, these various, um, microbes. Uh, so is it your argument? And I'm going to actually quote my co-host that I, I learned when she was co-hosting with Matt. Um, is it your belief that your body said no, because you were doing too much. And as a result of you doing too much, your body said no, and you ultimately became, um, you, you know, vulnerable to this chronic disease. I believe so. There is a huge element of stress and trauma and things like that. And sometimes that, that's the biggest trigger. And I think that that's one of my triggers. That was one of my triggers. So, so we, we have this background of you having, having these autoimmune issues to, uh, to begin with, which you were managing. Um, you, you now have uh, your body saying no, because although you believe there was nothing you couldn't do, 
That was mm. that's never true for any of us. You're an overachiever. You're overworking. You you come in contact with these with with the these bacteria and viruses and protozoa from these various bites that you're getting in 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 um, you know on your trip, um, and now you're getting sick. Um, how long did it take you to get from your illness, your initial illness, and you said you crashed pretty quickly, uh, till the time that you were diagnosed with Lyme disease? I didn't receive a proper diagnosis and had multiple tests, including some of the tests that I sent abroad to a lab in Germany. That's the most one of the more reliable labs in Europe. Uh, I wasn't diagnosed until March when the following year, when I was in Germany, when they were able to see the Lyme disease bacteria via a microscope. So uh, a method called dark blood analysis uh, that I now often use with clients and I find the most reliable way of detecting Lyme disease because I believe my immune system was so dysregulated that it wasn't producing the antibodies or they weren't testing me for the right type of Borrelia, you know, there's that factor as well. And also my immune system was very suppressed by mold and mycotoxins, which I only found out at the end of my journey, unfortunately. Okay, so, so you, it's about a year between the time that you have your crash and the time that you, your diagnosis or about a year between the time that you have- I'd say, your... I'd say it started July, so, and then I got diagnosed in March, so a bit less than a year. Less than a year, okay. So what were, what were the symptoms that you were you were feeling between between the first symptoms and your diagnosis? And at any time, did you or any of your healthcare uh, professionals consider Lyme as a potential diagnosis? So I was having mostly neurological symptoms. Um, it felt like my nervous system was on fire. All my muscles were twitching. I was having severe brain fog and my brain that was usually able to go at hundred miles an hour doing five things simultaneously just stopped. And I thought there were days where I couldn't say my full name or I used to mix up the names of simple things like a pen or a fork. Um, I was having some weird kind of dyslexia going on with my brain. Um, I was having the burning sensations at the bottom of my feet, uh, my rheumatoid arthritis flared up and, you know, previously it was really, really well managed. I was having these non-epileptic seizures. I was having these kind of grabbing sensations across my body, which they're sometimes called MS hug, um, them, which is really, really strange. I was having severe, severe insomnia, although I was so tired and I just longed to get to bed. I would wake up in the middle of the night and it's like my brain was switched on. Um, I couldn't keep balance. Uh, there were just so, so many symptoms, but I would say they were mostly neurological. I had one very, very strange episode of depersonalization, which I've put in the book and this is probably alongside with the non-epileptic seizures, probably the scariest thing that happened to me. Um, I understand it can happen with Bartonella, it can also happen with mycotoxins, but I felt like I pulsated out of my body and I was just there looking back at myself for a few moments, just completely disassociated. So that was, that was also one of the scariest things. I visited a number of doctors, my primary care doctor, who 
was confused about Lyme disease, was aware that some of the tests are not very reliable, um, but ultimately he had a negative test. Uh, I managed to convince him to give me a, a, a month's worth of doxycycline, which didn't do anything for me. Uh, if anything, just messed up my gut a bit. Um, I visited rheumatologists, neurologists. They were all, you're too stressed. Uh, it's not possible to have Lyme disease. My The rheumatologist actually told me, my colleague next door has written the guidelines for Lyme disease, so you don't have Lyme disease. So by some kind of method of osmosis, he was also an expert in writing guidelines on Lyme disease. And there it was... Um, Granted, he sent me to check me for a brain tumor, which I didn't have, thank God, but he could not tell me what I have. But he was very certain that I do not have Lyme disease to a point where he was getting really annoyed with me. Um, so I wasn't getting any answers. But although I had the severe brain fog, uh, you know, I was trying to, you know, employ that perseverance that I've had previously and just go back to the research, try and speak to some people, look up online. I had a gut feeling that it is Lyme disease. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about the vulnerability piece because you did say that you were living in a in a moldy environment, right? So mm. you you were you were swimming in sort of the this toxic soup uh physically. Talk to us about um, what your um, what your social toxins were, and talk to us about uh, where you were emotionally. Meaning, did, were there any social issues that are going on in your life that you believe made you um, uh, more vulnerable to getting sick? And 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 where were you emotionally? Did you have any things going on in your life emotionally, um, either from any time early in your life or just before the time that you had gotten sick? I think. Emotionally, uh, and many, and even in in real life, I was at crossroads. I was marketing manager, trying to become, you know, nutritional therapist, running my own business. You know, would it work? Although I was confident that I could help people, you know, would it work? I think I had these patterns of behavior. I was in a really loving, and I still am in a loving relationship, which is probably the biggest factor to getting me well. Um, so that was a huge plus, but I had these unhealthy patterns of behavior towards myself that I didn't fully understand at the time. And I think that was the biggest issue. I was a perfectionist and nothing that I did was ever good enough. I was never good enough. Um, so I disregarded a lot of the physical signs. So I think this, this for me, these patterns that I've had all my life, people pleaser, never good enough, never say no, you can always do anything, but nothing is good enough that you've done. Kind of that's what broke me a bit. Okay. And why do you think you had this people pleasing overachiever mindset? What do you think was driving that? It's probably patterns from the childhood. And were there, were there anything specifically from your childhood that you think put you in that position where you couldn't set boundaries and you always had to be the overachiever, or was that just a, a cultural issue? Uh, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Maybe there is a bit of a cultural issue. The females, you have the daughter, has to be the good one, and 
my brother was always the naughty one. So I felt that I had to overcompensate for his behavior. He was much older, much naughtier. And my parents were always, always stressed out with him. So I felt that I had to go the other way and sometimes disregard my own feelings just to just to please them. And of course, these patterns of, from childhood, they don't just go away. They turn into patterns in adulthood until we kind of realize them and try and work on them. Um, so, oh, is it okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, this is a perfect time to talk about oh, being an overachiever, being a people pleaser. I've yet to have someone sit in front of me as a clinician who doesn't have codependent behaviors. And really that's a trauma response. And I so relate to you. I'm Greek and culturally it's the same thing. I had an older brother. I had to be the goodest, if you will. Um, and anyway, this is, this is a pattern we develop out of survival in our childhood. Right. And then it no longer serves us in adulthood. It's great that we had it there when we did. Um, but what it does is it keeps us in a fight or flight stance. It keeps us mm. in fawning, which is we discuss is one of the F's of fight. It's past fight or flight, um, but it's still part of that survival mechanism. And when we're in a survival response, healing will always be on the back burner because, mm. because survival is on the front burner. So mm. it's something for us to consider, right. In terms of what makes us susceptible to and vulnerable to getting Lyme or having it manifest into absolutely more oh, I totally agree with that and the most horrible thing that I realized and all the most the best thing that I realized at the end of this journey when I really really looked at these patterns and identified them as the the main trigger and the main thing that was ultimately preventing me from getting well was that because my partner and I, we're really in a loving relationship. We've been together for such a long time when the Lyme disease struck, I think, 16 years together, is that I saw us as one and I was having these patterns that I was having towards myself, disregarding feelings and, and stuff like that. I was kind of reflecting them on him as well and I was treating him the same way I was treating myself. So that was, that was kind of really um enlightening to understand um but i didn't see that clearly at the time so now let's talk about your diagnosis because we we have different tests that are available to folks in the community mm -hmm. um all of which are all i guess almost all of which really suck so talk to us about the different tests that you took um and uh and how you finally located a test that allowed you to have a definitive diagnosis at least in your mind for lyme disease so I, here on the NHS, which is the main medical system, the test that you can get, and they would only be given to you by your GP if you have had the tick attached and if you have had the rash in most cases. The first line test is based on ELISA, which can be up to, um, and there is research on that, that can, it can be false negative in up to 50% of cases. And it's only when you get a positive ELISA test, you're given the more reliable Western blot. Well, I had the negative ELISA and I never had the Western blot because of course is it's a flip of a, a, of a coin chance of me getting um, a true reading of that test and I didn't get that. So I've had that test. Then I paid um, something like $700 to have my blood sent to Germany. 
to have a bit more reliable test and that all came back negative which was a big shock for me because that's supposed at the time that was the gold standard test for reliability and um i was really surprised i was at that point although i was 100 sure it's lyme disease i thought maybe it's not lyme disease maybe it's some kind of mysterious neurological autoimmune disease that i was having so that came back negative um and I had like a borderline positive test that I've done in a really cheap lab in Bulgaria, just like a high, uh, high street lab. And that was uh, based on a clear testing method, which I'm not very reliable with. But ultimately, as I said, they were able to see um, the Lyme disease bacteria in Germany via this dark blood analysis method, which I thought, hang on a minute, the bacteria is just going to hide. How, how are they going to catch it? And it doesn't always show up, but it did. And I could see the spirochete bouncing in and out of my cells, which was, I was delighted. I was so happy that I could finally see the tiniest bacteria that's causing so many issues. And now I understand, working with that lab in Hungary, that with active infection, you can have over 100 thousand spirochetes in 10 milliliters of blood so if there are there they will be found um literally i didn't realize that there could be so many spirochetes it's almost you're more lyme disease bacteria than you are human at some point and that's how it felt at the time i didn't feel me i felt like i didn't feel myself i felt like an empty shelf shell of my former self i truly felt like an empty shell you know, I I went from, you know, I've, I've got a picture from that um, trip to uh, Galapagos Island in Peru that I'm much picture on top of the world, you know, achieving everything I wanted to. In a few months, you would not recognize me. And sadly, we hear and see this all the time, myself included, like who I who I was before and then who I who I became, which you described so well, like this empty shell of a person like, you know, I the spirit, it was like the spirit was running the show in a mm. way. And like you, I, I did a live blood test separately. It already had a Lyme diagnosis, but I'd seen a doctor who just did this automatically. And I, I felt nauseous when I saw my blood because, and I also did a live oral bacteria test with a holistic so dentist. And guess what? Spirit, it was spirit city, super cute very romantic. (laughs) But, you know, I think um, just to your point, like it's one of the best feelings when you've been sick for so long and you've been gaslit and you've been told nothing's wrong. And perhaps this is depression, perhaps this is anxiety. And to finally see it with your own eyes that no, I was right this entire time. And I'm going to say this you know, anyone who's listening, if you feel like something is wrong, you are right. You are right. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. That's- absolutely. You are your own expert when yes. it comes to these things. And yes. don't let, yeah, absolutely. And everybody, I felt so alone in my journey, but at the same time, my journey was almost identical to other people's Lyme disease journeys. So this is so strange. People tend to feel so alone. And that's that's what the first part of the book was about. I was so isolated, I was so alone to manage my mental health, started writing this diary. But then I've listened to hundreds of Lyme disease stories. They're almost identical, aren't they? They are. 
they are the gaslighting the denial the strange symptoms the isolation loss of relationships loss of income you know it's so so similar you know and everyone at some point feels quote unquote crazy like they're going crazy and that's because there's just not enough support and information available when you need it you know now we're we're at a point where it's so easy for us to access but someone who's not part of this realm this is like a different planet right mm-hmm. they're they're barely landing on this planet so and we're speaking a different language um so it's just so important that you know, this podcast exists and we are sharing these stories because whoever's listening, you are not alone. And, and that brings me to the next question. So please tell me what, so you you get this diagnosis. What did your healing journey look like after this? I know you've done so many treatments, but you're able to say I had the journey for the eradication of the bacteria. And I think I felt that the healing started afterwards. So just before the COVID lockdowns hit here in the UK in March 2020, when many countries in Europe were trying to close their borders, I say to my partner, I feel like I'm dying. I found this place in Germany, which I heard on another podcast. So thank God for podcasts and sharing knowledge. I feel this is the right thing to do. I literally emptied my savings account, the last of my savings, because it's a really expensive treatment. And we literally flew in, I think, a week before the UK shut its borders so nobody could get out and Germany shut its borders so nobody could get in. So I felt that it's now or never and the symptoms were just getting progressively worse. Um, And so the treatments I received in Germany are several. The main ones are hypothermia, where your body is being heated up to the maximum temperature, literally your whole body. So it's a full body hypothermia. I know that there are some partial partial hypothermias done in in clinics around the world. So two treatments of full body hypothermia where you're being pumped with four different types of IV antibiotics. I was given antibiotics uh, during that two and a half weeks stay. Again, four different types for the different, um, you know, for the different... um, stages of the Borrelia biofilm disruptors. So I did the two hypothermias. As I mentioned previously, my partner did one hypothermia in the course of IV antibiotics himself. Uh, I did ozone. Uh, I did uh, laser IVs. I did different infusions with glutathione, vitamin C. I did chelation therapy, which I'm not too sure about and thinking about it, probably at that point I shouldn't have had the articulation therapy. I did some plasmapheresis where basically after you having these two hypothermia, hypothermias, which is two, um, one a week, uh, they basically rinse your blood, they separate your plasma and they kind of um, clean it up. And my plasma was filthy (laughs) full of dead bacteria and mycotoxins and all sorts of things and it was really uh shocking to see it um as well because they kind of separate it and you you can see it there and then um and there are i think part part of the healing journey there part you know in addition to these treatments that were all focused at the eradication of the bacteria is meeting people from all over the world, literally there were people from Australia and Canada, 
um, loads of people from America, some people from Poland, you know, all over the world that um, I can sit down with and talk to them about their symptoms and stories and cry and laugh and share tips. So I would say the treatments there were just literally kill, kill, kill the bacteria. And I was feeling so unwell, actually. I was feeling worse after some of the treatments than before I got to the clinic. But the healing part started with these conversations that there is hope and there is support and, and there is recognition. But I would say, and, and part of the healing was starting to write the book, starting to tell my story. I think it's really, really important to tell your story to the world, to feel that you're being heard, to feel that you can express what you're going through. I think that's, again, the healing part. But, um, but these treatments, I'll say they were really vigorous and they were just many ways of trying to kill the bacteria and the hypothermia, um, you know, principle, it doesn't work for everybody. Even Dr. Dows, um, who runs the clinic is quite, um, you know, quite honest. And it says for somebody who's had Lyme disease 20 years and has been done doing antibiotics for 10 years, it's unlikely to work. But I think it was really, really good for me. I had to do another sort of a year and a half after that of different tinctures and protocols and, uh, you know, different things to, to continue that part and recover and like really rigorous autoimmune protocol. But I think the treatments there really helped me. So that was two and a half weeks. And then how long after did you continue the other treatments? So I, I then did, did different protocols and I'd say another year and a half, but I was doing probably by that time, obviously I was a nutritional therapist and, you know, in the know of all, everything that's going around um, with regards to, to Lyme disease. So I was doing, I was being really strict again. I was doing, I'll say another 30 things on the side to try and get well including wow. exercise, really strict autoimmune paleo diet. I was doing maybe 40 supplements. Wow. Um, and things like that. Infrared sauna, Epsom salt baths, body brushing, keeping those, those you name it, I've done pathways, it. Keeping those detox pathways open, I say, is mm -hmm. one of the most vital things you can do. I wish someone would have told me that on my Lyme journey. You know, oh, I'm, yes. I was, you know, yeah. that kill, bind, sweat, um, protocol, but I was killing, I was binding that last part, not so much. I was barely, mm -hmm. I had an issue with sweating, which a lot of folks with Lyme yeah. have. Um, so yeah, I, I'm glad that, you know, you brought that up. If you were to say, would you say that the hyperthermia was the most effective of, of everything aside from, of course, keeping your detox pathways open with all those I I think in terms of eradicating the bacteria, yeah. um, because, and the combination, I don't think a monotherapy with one antibiotic that's oral antibiotic works. I, I don't think that would work unless it's an acute infection. Even there, I, then I don't think it works. But the combination of four different antibiotics plus the hypothermia itself destroys the bacteria, but also amplifies the effect of antibiotics by 16 times. So it was like a basically nuclear bomb that's gone off in my body. And I, I did feel like that. I did feel like um, I felt worse, but I knew that, you know, a lot of things have probably been killed. You know, a lot of uh, beneficial bacteria in my gut's probably been killed. A lot of 
other things along the way, but I felt that that was the right combination for me. Again, I know people that, um, you know, didn't recover after the hypothermia and or didn't experience much change. And this goes back to, I don't think there is a single treatment for Lyme disease that works for everybody. I don't think there's a silver bullet. And I think this is the biggest issue in the Lyme community. And I get with a lot of clients, they come to me and say, give me one thing or tell me about this miracle thing. Or This is the, the quickest way that you can lose hope and lose a lot of money is to search for that silver bullet. You have to build the foundation. It's a, I say to clients, it's a bit like building a house. You have you have to have good foundation, autoimmune paleo diet, detoxification pathways. Then you have really, you know, stable walls. You need things like DNRS, autoimmune paleo protocols. And, you know, it's not just one thing that it never is one thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, being completely honest, the hypothermia worked for me. I have a client that recently returned from, um, Germany. The hypothermia hasn't worked for him at all. Yeah. Um, so it works for some people, but for some, it doesn't, unfortunately. But for you, for you, it was extremely yeah. effective. And I, I like to see, I like to say the way we get sick, I look at it kind of like a pie. There's just different pieces, toxin, mm. traumas food, nutrition, lack of minerals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the way we get healthy is also like a pie, right? And there's just yeah. so many different parts. There's, there's diet, there's keeping those detox pathways open. There's radical self-care in there. There's, um, neural retraining, which you just mentioned. Yeah. So I see it the exact, and everyone's pie is going to be a different flavor or it's going to have Absolutely. different flavors. Cause it's not going to look the same, something that works for you may be extremely detrimental to me. You know, mm -hmm. I know people with ozone, it's been life-changing for some, it's been detrimental for others. That's mm -hmm. just an example. Um, but that leads me to the next question. Are you still treating Lyme at this time or? I, I stopped about maybe a couple of months ago. I was still taking huge amounts of supplements and still sticking to the detox, um, regime and, and things like that so I'm still doing that to a level that helps me with my autoimmunity but I would say 99% of my symptoms with Lyme disease have gone wow wow so it's more like maintenance at this point than yeah. than anything else are you so um my I think you'd mentioned maybe mycotoxins are you still treating that so I think this was the biggest piece of the puzzle that you know, I wish I knew at the beginning is Lyme disease often is triggered by exposure to mycotoxins. And your biggest issue when you have Lyme disease is actually mycotoxins. I'm yet to meet a person with chronic Lyme disease that doesn't have mycotoxins. And what the biggest issue is that people overfocus on the Lyme sometimes without seeing the bigger picture. And even from the way that your immune system works. So mycotoxin would suppress the part of your immune system that deals with the mycotoxin. So if that part is, uh, sorry, your immune system, the part of the immune system that clears up Lyme disease is suppressed by mycotoxins. So if you have mycotoxins, you're basically like driving around with flat tires. And I'll say 100% of my clients with like chronic Lyme disease that haven't been able to shift it are just full of mycotoxins. I only found out about the mycotoxins at the end of my Lyme journey. I wish I found that at the beginning. Probably I didn't have to go to Germany. Probably I would have gotten well quicker. 
But I think the mycotoxins were the biggest missing piece of the puzzle. So let's let's revisit a topic the two of you talked about a little bit earlier, which is which is the cultural or traumatic issues that you had to manage during childhood, maybe even some of the 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 gender issues that you had to deal with uh, um, during your childhood, which put you in a position where you had to be overachievers and you had to be people pleasers. What impact did that have on your ability to read your body signals when you were getting sick and then when you were on the healing journey? When I was getting sick, I just thought, I'm fine. I can do it. I can push through. I've always been, you know, you can push through. You can do better than this. Just, you know, don't pay too much attention. Why do you need to rest? You can just, when you can be doing things. And then this totally changed when when I became on the other side of the journey, I'm listening to my body a lot more. I'm a lot less, I'm A minus personality these days. <laughs> I take care of myself and rest and I don't feel the need to do everything to perfection or prove anything to anybody anymore. So you were feeling the signals, you were just ignoring them, and that's what the cultural overlay did for you? Or do you think there I think, were I think signals? it's a combination of cultural overlay. And I was, in a way, an immigrant as well. I've come over here to study, and then I had to carve my own career. So maybe there is an element of that as well, because it's when you're an immigrant to a country, you either make it or break it, because you don't have these safety nets around you. I didn't have my family around me when I was... I've come over here, I was 18, you know, and it's not that easy um, to make a living. So maybe that's another element of it. I don't know. Uh, it's really hard to sometimes reflect on your own journey, but I suspect it's patterns from childhood, patterns from its, its make or break situation, patterns of traits of my character, patterns of my dad was an absolute workaholic that he's made it but he worked all hours and my mom had to work all the time so it that that was my template you know for success in life so it's it could be everything a combination of things so one of the things that we've observed here at tick boot camp after interviewing 320 people is the people who are successful on the journey seem to follow a particular pattern and we've recently called it the parm um, pattern where we have this prehabilitation phase where you're getting yourself ready. We have this, what we're calling the aiding phase or the phase where you're killing. And we're trying to say away from words like kill because of what impact that may have on your, on your, um, uh, on your, um, on your healing. You, you have this uh, rehabilitation phase, which you were, I think you were calling your healing. And then of course you have your maintenance phase, right? Did you follow that pattern? And if you did talk to us about um, what um, tools and teams you built through each phase to help you through the emotional elements of this and the physiological elements of this journey? I think emotional elements, my partner, Jack, was my biggest support. I felt that I can talk to him kind of about everything I was going through, but also writing and journaling, which is the first part of the book, I think, actually putting my thoughts down on paper and making them real, telling the world about them. Although I didn't think that's going to be a book that was 
that was really, really helpful. Um, and talking to people that have gone through that experience was, was really, really helpful. Uh, physiologically, you know, having that knowledge about some of these supplements and detox pathways and that, that all was so helpful because one way that people approach Lyme disease wrong is, and they hurt like crazy, if I may use that term, is not doing things in, in the proper order. For example, you know, starting focusing on the antimicrobials and killing all the bacteria without, you know, the detox pathways. I knew that that's, that's a no-no. And luckily I didn't have many extreme Herx reactions. Um, so I think the combination of the two, but I think if it wasn't for my partner, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I would be where I am now. I don't think that I could talk to my parents Although I'm quite close to my mom, I didn't think I could talk to her about how unwell I was because I didn't want to worry her. I think going back to people pleasing and don't worry people too much necessarily, although you feel like you're dying. So I could share that with Jack, you know, some of the darkest things that I was experiencing and that really helped me. So one of the things we see on this podcast regularly is, uh, or we learn in this podcast, is that Lyme disease is an isolating disease, that it, in many mm. cases, we lose all of the people around us. And, and we see that there are some people that are able to uh, stay in healthy relationships. And it is a tribute to the people that they're in the relationship with. But it's also, we also have to, um, we also have to recognize that we play a role in making sure that those relationships can um, continue, assuming we, we're in a relationship with the right person. So what is your recommendation to people who are going through this? Um, wh what is your recommendation to when people are going through a Lyme disease journey, they can continue to hopefully stay in healthy, intimate relationships? Be honest. And, you know, I, th I think expecting from people to totally understand what Lyme disease is, if they've never really come across it before, maybe too much to expect, but just be honest and share how you feel, um, hoping that people around you can understand you. And people can always give you empathy and some level of understanding, but I think expecting them to understand the full complexity and emotional toil that Lyme disease bring with itself, you know, from like a simple conversation, maybe too much to ask. So what kinds of things did you do so that your partner would understand what your challenges were so that he could have empathy? Because empathy is not something that we can just, we, we can just have. It's something that we can, only, we can only develop, assuming we want to, if we're getting some very specific, specific information. So how detailed were you and how helpful was that in allowing your partner to have the empathy that allowed your intimate relationship to continue to develop? I would just communicate with him. I'll tell him how it made me feel physically, how it made me feel psychologically. And sometimes I'll just say to him, I need space and he'll understand that. So just keep the communication, even sometimes if it is, I just want to lay down and I just need some space and I don't want to talk to anybody today. I hope you understand nothing to do with you. You know, just just try and communicate and, and be as honest as you can about how you feel on both levels, physiologically and psychologically, because that's really important. 
So you said that during the course of your journey, your partner was also being checked for Lyme disease. So what was his reaction when you first started to urge him to consider that perhaps he may be sick, that he needs to be uh, checked, and that perhaps uh, that was a result of the intimate contact that you were having mm -hmm. with one another? I, I didn't even think about that. It's not until we were at the clinic in Germany that the doctors sort of started asking us whether he's going to have the partner treatment. And I thought they were trying to upsell something. And I started talking to the other people that have had Lyme disease and all of their partners were having the treatment. Some of them were testing positive. Some of them were borderline. And at that point, I said, we're spending enough money on this. You know, don't worry about it. You know, I'm not going to pressure you to do that. But it's, I think, through... I think the fact that he saw so many people that I wasn't well, but there were people that were much, much worse than me. There were people that were coming in wheelchairs. There were people that have left four or five children at the other side of the pond to, to come over and spend their life savings to, you know, seek miracle treatment. So I think he saw that side of things. So she's unwell, but it can get much, much worse um, as well. So I think he decided himself to have it. And I felt that it's important to share this part in the book because Lyme disease is not something just you experience yourself. It does affect your networks. It does affect the people closest to you in, in, in many ways. So Daisy, during the course of your healing journey, you, you utilize a number of different protocols. And mm -hmm. one of the things that makes folks anxious when they listen to this podcast is uh, that if they don't have a lot of resources, they believe they can't get better. Uh, and we've found that that's not the case, that, mm. you know, there are many things that you can do um, to get yourself ready and to, in many cases, get yourself through this journey without having a lot of resources. So as 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 somebody who has a clinical practice, uh, and I'm going to ask Christina to weigh on this as well, what are the things that people can do that are either uh, no cost or low cost to get themselves through this through this journey? There are many things that you can do that, that are no cost and low cost that can have a significant impact on, on the Lyme disease journey and goes back to that thing. It's like building a house. It's not a single thing. So um, optimizing your vitamin D levels, you know, a lot of people with Lyme disease have got really low vitamin D levels and their vitamin D is more like a hormone. It helps regulate your immune system, many other things. So Having optimal levels, vitamin D levels and optimal levels for me are levels between 100 and 120 nanomoles a litre. So really, really high. Some labs can tell you, oh, you're at 50, you're fine. No, they need to be really, really high. And vitamin D is really inexpensive vitamin D you can take and test for. Uh, simple things like having living in a clean environment, clean air and um, water, filtering your water, you know, opening your windows, getting fresh air in, eating real food, non-processed, ideally gluten and dairy-free, more towards autoimmune paleo style, what we used to eat like, um, can truly be life-changing. Um, doing a bit of meditation, doing breath work, these are all things that you can do at home that are free. Writing, journaling, um, exposing yourself to sunlight, grounding yourself, Please use a tick spray if you're grounding in, in grass. <laughs> ticks, ticks are active all year round here in the UK when the temperature is over seven degrees, which is 
11 out of 12, 12 months, for example. So these are all very, very simple things. Your immune system is in your gut. So, you know, if you're having candida infections, like many people with Lyme disease are having, especially if you've been among antibiotics, uh, you know, trying to do anything to improve your gut, eating more fiber, more vegetables, um, that can be a totally life-changing. And none of these things are really expensive or time-consuming. Um, so I'd say these are some very, very basic things. But even some of these supplements, you know, if you're having dealing with mycotoxins, yeah, you could be taking some of the more advanced stuff like glutathione and phosphonidylcholine and, and things like that. But you can just take a simple activated charcoal binder, you know, that's really, really inexpensive. And that's one of the things that can help you get rid of mold and improve your immune system function, which gives you a better chance of shifting Lyme. So, you know, don't just think that it, it's the majorly expensive treatments like the hypothermia and, and these other things that are there that are successful. It's these little bits that are just as important. And I did them alongside, I did some of them before and alongside the treatments, and I did a whole load of them after the treatment. So it's not just the hypothermia. So Christina, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the low cost and no cost um, uh, tools that you would recommend? And I'd also like you to share with our folks uh, the brilliant journal that you've created and the software that you're, you're developing, because I think this is a really important topic that folks need to know more, more about and, and some of the cool things you're doing to develop tools to help people in that area. I have to say, I was so stoked to hear that Daisy mentioned journaling, obviously, because that was a huge piece of the pie for me, so to speak. And um, yeah, I created the journal because I was looking for a mind-body journal when I was couch-bound. I couldn't find one. I had no interest or energy to create one. I was so out of it. I had no capacity, um, but I, I had to, I couldn't remember if I took meds <laughs> and when I took them or what treatments I did or what symptoms I was experiencing. And then there was the, the mind, you know, that mind portion, that spirit connection of, you know, what I was grateful for, something I loved about my body, et cetera, et cetera. So putting that all together and creating a journal that I could use every day was really impactful. And it sounds like it was for you too, Daisy. And, mm. you know, I'm also a huge fan of something called journal speak where you, you just write down whatever you want and you rip it up, tear it up, destroy it, delete it. After you're done, you are more likely to express yourself when you know, there's no possible way someone else is going to read or find it afterwards. So I have most of my clients do that if they, if they so wish and find it helpful in the mornings generally. Um, so that's a free option. You can, you can go ahead and and do that. I also have a free mini journal on my website at um, www.beginwithintoday.com that you can print or just copy the prompts and use that every single day. Um, something, you know, we, we were discussing this a little bit before something I have all of my clients or patients do is neural retraining. And mm -hmm. there are various programs out there. There's a uh, dynamic neural retraining system. It's called DNRS. There's Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. Uh, there's vital sides. There's organic intelligence. The list goes on and on now. I believe Gupta and DNRS are the most cost-effective. They're around, at this time, they're around 300, 350. Um, I've had 
clients successfully obtain free DVDs by joining like Facebook groups for neural retraining. And, you know, someone's either giving them away or selling them at a really low cost because they don't need them anymore. That's how they, that's how they get them. Um, I wish every doctor would have their patients do this first and foremost, because I have yet to meet anyone with Lyme who is not in chronic fight or flight. And the way to get out of it is through neural retraining. We have to convince the brain and the body. There's no longer a tiger in the room. There's no longer a threat in the room. And Mm -hmm. as soon as that tiger leaves the room, healing that was on the back burner is now on the front burner. And it happens at warp speed. I've witnessed it now so many times within myself, within friends, family, clients, et cetera. Um, so those are, those are two big ones, obviously like, you know, journaling, uh, neural retraining, Daisy mentioned some really good ones. I mean, your diet shop on the outer side, you know, the outer side of the grocery store, (laughs) don't go through those aisles. You want whole foods, um, whole vegetables, all of it. Um, you know, we discussed, uh, codependency quite a bit in this episode and, you know, that can manifest as overachieving. Right. And I always tell my clients, we can do anything. We can't do everything. And often before we got sick, we were just in this mindset of, we have to do it all. We must do it all. Um, and people and people pleasing. So that all falls under the umbrella of codependency. There's something called codependence anonymous they're, they have online meetings. They have in-person meetings. They're amazing. They, they go, you know, by the 12 step, um, 12 step guidelines, but it's, it's different. Obviously it's not substance abuse. However, chronic illness doesn't look so different in terms of Mm. how, how substance abuse manifests. And that's why we have like brilliant people like Dr. Gabor Mate, who specializes in Mm. both, right? Because, because they're so similar. Um, but anyway, that's a, that is a free resource. You can go to meetings. I facilitate a free Lyme empowerment circle once a month that is free to the community. And anyone with chronic illness is more than welcome to attend that. Um, so yeah, the codependency meetings will help with boundaries. You can do like 12 step. I'm sorry. You could do the actual like step programs within that, um, step groups, grounding, going out into nature, grounding as much as possible, being out in the sun, if you're able to taking in those sun rays, get that. You can't overdose on vitamin D from the sun. I always say that, um, you know, uh, meditation is free. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think like, just using being creative, following your joy. What makes you happy? You know, like it's the opposite of dis-ease is being in joy. So finding and following those things that bring you joy can have a huge impact on your health and your well-being. So Daisy, let's take the next step together. And that is, that is um, your transformation, right? You went from mm-hmm. being um, a marketing professional and then, uh, then a, uh, a nutritional therapist to now moving into the Lyme community and, 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 and sharing this journey uh, by crossing over with your writing aptitude and your love for writing and, and, and which brought you to marketing. And of course, now your love for uh, scientific inquiry and nutrition in particular. So talk about how uh, these, these aptitudes, these God-given gifts came together and how you're now using them to serve the Lyme community. So it was 
it was a perfect journey now looking back because I was very interested in autoimmunity because of my own um, experience with autoimmunity and then interested in research because I had some research published and I was just reading through fascinating papers about what things like vitamin D can do to autoimmunity and, and you know, prebiotics and gut health and, and things like that. So I think all the needed steps were there and then I had the major crisis and then I was like, oh, what do I do? Although I had this little voice in me even when I was feeling really unwell, that it was kind of empowering saying, you know what to do, you know, follow the same path you followed before. And although I was an empty shell, I was desperate. I kind of had this little voice and I have a very curious brain. I think this is my best asset. I want to know why. I don't just ask the what questions, I ask the why questions. And I need to understand the why. And that's really, really important when you're on a journey like that. Understand the why and you know, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, how difficult it is. If you, if you are on that path, you will get, you will get some answers. So um, getting really unwell, knowing that it's Lyme disease, trying to find the right treatments to kill off the bacteria and then the right treatments to, to get well. I kept asking still, why, 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 why did I get so unwell so quickly? Whereas some people can have Lyme disease and, you know, it's a real spectrum. You can have somebody with Lyme disease and several co-infections and they're very functional, you know, they can hold down the job and Define, and then you get somebody like me that can goes from high functioning person to I can't get out of bed and function and I don't remember my own name. And I was just really curious why that happened. So once I got back as part of my healing journey, I think it was my find the why that will help you. That, that will be kind of the missing piece of the puzzle. So, um, you know, I've just had my research published and I'm so used to, you know, getting stuck, stuck in PubMed and just finding these papers. And I said, is there some something more to Lyme disease? That, and a bit like you, you know, I bought all the books that I could on Lyme disease and I've read them all along <laughs> the way. But I don't think I found my why in there. So I thought there must be something else. There must be something. Else. I just kind of knew instinctively there, there must be something else. And I am the answer. You know, once the brain fog started lifting after Germany and we're still in lockdown in the UK and everybody was working from home and had more free time. And I, th I thought, OK, this is the perfect opportunity. Let's get back to that. And delving into that research and finding the link between autoimmunity and Lyme disease, I think it was... It was my why. And it was, it is still a very, very underappreciated, uh, I'd say probably one of the most underappreciated aspects of this um, bacterial infection. Um, so I delved back into research and what I found absolutely shocked me. There are papers going back several decades that show that Lyme disease can trigger different types of autoimmunity, um, you know, specifically neurological autoimmune diseases like Alzheimer's and Alan McDonald's done a lot of research, you know, finding the spirochetes in, 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 in the brains of people with um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's links to Parkinson's and ALS and multiple sclerosis. 
there are links to other autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis. And I was like, how is it possible that this bacteria can trigger so many types of autoimmunity? And because a known mechanism in autoimmunity is something called molecular mimicry, which I talk about in the book, it's basically your body's immune system recognizes things by the protein structure, which is an easy way of, you know, the way that amino acids are put together in different things. So it would recognize bacterial infections and viral infections by protein structure. Sometimes the protein structure is too similar to something else to part of your body and sometimes it can start attacking your thyroids by mistake and um, so for example common bacterial infections like helicobacter pylori can lead to um, things like Hashimoto's but what fascinated me about the Lyme disease bacteria and I don't think this is talked about enough and especially in the context of COVID we all know about these spike proteins on, on COVID the COVID virus well, in a very, very similar way, the Lyme disease bacteria doesn't give off these toxins that usually pathogenic bacteria gives off called lipopolysaccharides that can make us ill. Instead, it's got, it has got something called lipoproteins, very much like these spike proteins on the viruses. It has got 120 of them. So if we think that the COVID virus is something quite superior for having some of these 27 spike proteins, just think about how, how um, and you know, bacteria is considered much more simplistic than, than, than viruses. And then we've got this bacteria that's got some of these 120 lipoproteins on its surface, and we haven't studied all of them, and we don't know um, all of them, but they can, depending on the environment, they can switch up and trigger different parts of the immune system to cross-react with different body tissues. And therein lies one of the biggest ways of how Lyme disease can trigger autoimmunity, different types of autoimmunity, several types of autoimmunity at the same time. And there is another mechanism, which I talk about in the book of how specifically can trigger brain autoimmunity. So we thought up until 20 years ago that the brain is a very privileged site that you cannot get autoimmune reactions in your brain. We now know this isn't true. There are particular um, cells in your brain called the microglia, which are well studied uh, at the moment that are these cells that take care of the neurons. Um, but it's known that once uh, the Lyme disease bacteria crosses the blood brain barrier, and it can do that easily, um, it can um, activate these microglia to start attacking them. And sometimes in the crossfire of the microglia trying to protect the brain, they can start destroying some of the tissue. And that's one of the mechanisms of how Lyme disease is linked to neurological autoimmune diseases. Um, so this is what I found quite fascinating. And many people find that even if they're lucky enough to eradicate the bacteria, they don't get well. They never get well, unfortunately. And I think the missing element is with autoimmunity, even when you've removed the initial trigger that caused that immune system to start self-attacking, you still need to manage the autoimmune element. Therein lies the argument that Lyme disease is an autoimmune disease and you shouldn't just employ um, treatments for the eradication of the bacteria, which I think sometimes people over-focus on 
you should also employ um, things to um, modulate that autoimmunity element. You should deploy things to help with the brain autoimmunity because these things don't ju just automatically snap back. Um, I think this is really important. I think this is really underappreciated and I think this should be talked about more. I think this is kind of the, although it's it's not it's not a concept that I've I've invented in any way. I think it's the new kind of perspective on, on Lyme disease that is underappreciated. So Daisy, what kind of tools would you recommend for the brain and body uh, immune modulation? So some of the things that I've mentioned before, so uh, really high vitamin D levels, uh, autoimmune paleo style um, diet, uh, really high glutathione levels, uh, other nutrients such as vimpocetine, uh, really high omega-3 levels, you know, different supplements, um, even things like managing trauma, it has got that autoimmune element as well. So a lot of things cross over, but I think it's it a lot there are separate things which which are really, really important to be, and you know, trying to get rid of any other toxins that are adding additional immune burden or further exacerbating that autoimmunity is really important, like mold like heavy metals and, and, and things like that. So that's that's what's really, really important. Don't just focus, you know, it's it, with Lyme disease, it's, and I think I've, I haven't come up with that and it's genius. I think Dr. Horowitz came up with that. With Lyme disease, you need to fight the infection, inflammation, immune dysregulation, all three things to get well. The three eyes from Dr. Horowitz, right? Yeah. So, um... Okay, so did you use any herbal therapies during the course of your journey? And what herbs did you use from the from the immune modulation perspective? So um, I talk about some of these herbs for the immune modulation perspective, and there are some some of the herbs from the Buna protocol. Um, you know, things like perilla, things like astragalus, uh, loads of different types of mushrooms can be immune modulating as well. Um, but I used for that, after Germany for that year and a half, I used quite quite a lot of herbs. I used biofilm disruptors. I didn't just assume that the bacteria completely died after Germany. I just operated on the assumption there is still some bacteria left. So I, I kept going with some, some of these herbs that both were killing some of the bacteria and helping me modulate my immune system as well. So talk to us about how you came up with a title for your book. Oh, um, I, I just thought of it. I thought um, Lyme disease should be more talked about. Uh, it should be because I had COVID pandemic and everybody's talking about COVID as a backdrop. And I was there sat in Germany with, 20 other people from all over the world that have sold everything, remortgaged their homes, left everything to try and treat this. And I was like, this is the real pandemic. This is why are people just shouting on television about COVID, which of course, you know, it's a serious issue. But yeah, I was like, this is the real pandemic. This is what people should be talking more about. And again, I thought about this this year when in, in July, I think research came out to say that suspected 15% of the world population has got Lyme disease, that's a true pandemic scale. And I thought, what can I, you know, I feel like it should be highlighted, you know, it should be in the limelight. Because I believe 
the Lyme disease infection is behind a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, a lot of autoimmune diseases, a lot of, um, you know, mysterious illnesses that people are dealing with. And I that's why I felt it should be in the limelight. It should be more talked about. Um, so that, that's how I came up with it. So and, and that is really cool. So so talk to us, talk to us about um, who you wrote the book for. And are there sections of the book that you recommend to people who are at different phases of their uh, healing journey? I feel that the first part of the book, I, re- I wrote it for my own healing journey, but I also wrote it for all those people that feel they don't have the voice to tell their stories because it's very easy when dealing with the conventional medical professionals that don't believe in Lyme disease to shut you up and for you to never ever tell your story. And I think that happens very, very often. So I felt by telling my story, I'm telling the story of many, many other people. So that's what the first part was about. Uh, It is very honest, it's quite brutal and I've put everything in it as it was. So, absolutely no editing this is how I've written it and this is what what's in it the second part of the book it's Daisy wearing a different hat more of the researcher hat look it's just there's more to it here are the studies if you want to understand the mechanisms behind some of these autoimmune attacks here is the research that explains that for you in a in layman's terms so you know, everybody can understand some of these and I explain what molecular mimicry is and and things like that in in terms that everybody can understand. And the third part is more like a manual of, because I think there are brilliant books about how you, you know, Buna books and Horowitz books about how you can follow some protocols to eradicate the bacteria. But the third part is a protocol about how you can manage Lyme disease triggered autoimmunity. So I talk about the diet, I talk about stress management, I talk about your adrenals, your thyroids, some of the supplements, you know, additional therapies. I've got a section about related to complicated, talking about mold illness and heavy metals and parasites and, and other things like that. So I think it's that's more the hands-on approach, what you can do to help yourself. So before we get to the final question, and we always allow our co-host to ask the final question. So we'll let Christina um, um, have that moment in one second. So can you again, just share with folks uh, where they can find uh, the brilliant book, Lime in the Limelight? Thank you so much for this opportunity. So Lime in the Limelight uh, can be found on Amazon uh, internationally. So wherever you're listening this from, it's available all over the world. Uh, across Europe, in Australia, in the US. Um, so get your copy if it may be in- interesting. Um, you're going to see three very different perspectives on Lyme disease. And, and if folks wanted to work with you, how would they get in touch with you and what kinds of um, services are you able to offer folks in the Lyme community uh, remotely? I, I have my own clinic, Optimal Health Nutrition. So you can find me at optimalhealthnutrition.co.uk. I have clients from all over the world. I offer one-to-one nutritional therapy consultations. I also work for the biggest functional medicine clinic in Europe, which is based in London. It's called the London Clinic of Nutrition, where I have the pleasure of seeing people, clients face-to-face as well. Um, 
I have two social media accounts. One is more specifically to Lyme called the Lyme Nutritionist on Instagram and Facebook, and one more general one called at Optimal Health Nutrition um, as well, um, too. All right, as much as I'd like to ask the final question, I have to yield to my co-host, Christina, <laughs> the final question. First of all, you are brilliant. And I am mind blown by the information you provided on the spike proteins. I had absolutely no idea. I also learned in your book how many people probably have Lyme in the world. And it's just, it's more than I even assumed. And you're right, this is a true pandemic. And hopefully we just keep getting more information out there in the limelight, no pun intended. Um, so one of my favorite quotes that I read in your, in your book was um, the journey made me realize that our bodies never work against us. Even in the case of autoimmune diseases, where the understanding mm -hmm. is that our own immune system is attacking tissues and cells. You just need to find the imbalance, the triggers be your own private eye. And I, mm -hmm. I say this, I say this all the time. I've written, I've written posts about it. I think, um, people are just like, Oh, I don't know. You know, this is an autoimmune disease. It's like, no, there's something causing it though. Right. Um, but I love that this is where you got to in your journey. And my question to you is what has the journey taught you? Like, how are you a different person now? Right. Because we, I've said this in previous episodes, you know, the person we were before got us sick. You are a different person now. Who is that now? Who are you now? I feel that I had to go through this journey to then pass on that knowledge and help people. And many of my Lyme disease clients love the fact that I've been I've walked in their shoes before so I think it's given me that really unique professional perspective personally I'm not the same person that I was before I I kind of Lyme disease completely broke me down and I had to rebuild myself and when it comes to rebuilding I decided to rebuild something better um, so I have more boundaries with myself I'm much less of a perfectionist um, and I'm not so much of a people pleaser anymore. So I think it has changed me for the better. Um, I think, but I, I just really appreciate the whole experience. I think Lyme disease was the worst, best thing that happened to me personally and professionally. So the worst, best thing. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I could not relate more. Well, I, want, I want to first thank my co-host, Christina Gonzalez for taking time out of her really busy schedule to uh, bless us and our listeners with our brilliant questions. And I'm glad you did get to my favorite uh, question that you ask. I have many Gonzalez-isms, if that's even a word, uh, I'm going to create <laughs> it now. Uh, but my favorite is, uh, my favorite is that, um, you know, the, you, you have to become a new person because the old person got sick. Right. And I think that's just a, another one of uh, Christina's brilliant, um, brilliant quote. So again, thank you, Christina, for, yeah. for uh, sharing, uh, you know, so much of your time with us. I was, well, I was also just going to say like her metaphor of building a house, like that is literally it. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> we're starting from scratch, right. In a way, like we've been broken down and now we're rebuilding or creating a mansion. 
Absolutely. I think, yeah, I don't even know what my my shack looked like before. <laughs> but it pretty much was. It was a shack trying to be a mansion, so... Well, so we're we're glad you got out of the tar paper shack, and you're now uh, you're now uh, living living uh, you know in uh, in a castle. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, and Daisy, thank you so much for sharing your brilliant story with our folks, and and again, thank you for all the great work that you're doing in the Lyme community. Thank you thank so you much Daisy. for having me. It's been a pleasure. Folks, we really want to thank you for listening to our interview with Daisy Ilchowska. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Daisy Ilchowska, please visit her Instagram page at Optimal Health Nutrition. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of your Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of your post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint. It has been inspired by information that has been shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We are you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, the members of our community, for taking the time to leave us reviews on past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.